you're an early stage Web3 founder, apply to our award-winning accelerator program, Basecamp at outlierventures.io slash Basecamp. We write your first $50,000 check and give you access to 200 mentors, including many of the leading Web3 founders, and a network of 1,000 of the world's leading investors and exchanges. We've helped over 30 startups from 15 countries from all around the world, raise $130 million in growth funding, and can help you fast-track product market fit and, where relevant, the launch of your token economy. So today I'm really happy to welcome Dominic Williams, President and Chief Scientist of Definity. Welcome, Dominic. Thank you for having me, Jamie. Good to speak to a fellow Brit, although I'm not sure you qualify now, given you've been uh, gallivanting around the world um, and I believe are currently holed up uh, in the US at the moment. I am. I'm in Palo Alto currently. Um, I probably qualify as an expat. Uh, Before COVID, you know, I moved around a lot more. Uh, We have... Uh, several research centers uh, at Affinity, one the biggest in Zurich, one in San Francisco, one in Palo Alto, and a small one in Tokyo. Um, but I currently live in Palo Alto, and I'm speaking to you from our Palo Alto research center. Well, you definitely kept the accent, but I guess it's good to trade off in the US anyway, isn't it? So why, why, uh, why, throw, why throw away that? But um, there, are many, there are many Brits over here, but you know, you've, you've, you've got people who've been over here for sort of 20 years, and the accent just stays the same. It's very funny. Yeah. So the Definity Foundation is developing a protocol called the Internet Computer, ICP, and that will its aim is to extend the internet so it can host software and logic data and data natively in smart contracts by combining compute capacity provided by an independent network of data centers all around the world. So the reasons why I've got you on the show as a founder, firstly, you're a serial founder. Um, so you have been through all three of the web cycles, if you agree that we're in a third one. You've had at least one exit from what I could see. Were there docs? Were there more? Um, I mean, this, you know, there's, I've done all kinds of things. And um, some, some of the things that I would count as being my biggest achievements actually didn't result in any particular financial gain for me. Others that um, I, I, I'm not particularly proud of did, did result in a <laughs> financial gain. So I, I think the, the journey of tech founders, especially outside of Silicon Valley, can be very storied. Uh, you know, I was um, working on tech startups, um, you know, long before you had, you know, any kind of venture capital that was tech savvy in the UK. And you know, I can tell you that you know being here in Silicon Valley makes things much easier. Uh, it's a different kind of experience, and not not least because you're, ex- you know, you're able to expose, you know, lean on pre-existing wisdom for entrepreneurs and investors and so on. Um, but you know, I, I see things getting much better in in Europe and London too, and uh, ho- hopefully people will have things. Easier than I did, but but it's it's true that I've done an awful lot of things. Um, actually, during during dot com, I was trying to create, I, I guess, probably the world's first major cloud computing platform. I had a a, a product called Smart Drives. AirDocs actually was a sort of spin on that that was aimed at uh, the, the the mobile computing market, and this thing called Smart Drives enabled you to access files stored on a remote server over slow internet connections. We did some really clever stuff with differential compression and 
that, that would use these sort of heuristics to identify common bytes and files so we could reduce the amount of data being transmitted. And, you know, we're, actually that was my um, first exposure to cryptography because we're using things, something called Diffie-Hellman Key Exchange to um, establish secure connections. And this was back in, you know, 99, 2000, 2001. And uh, the, the, the technology was called adaptive redundant transfer reduction. But the aim anyway was um, to A, sell the software to enterprises and B, create a cloud service where uh, that would enable any consumer or any business to store their files online. And it was really cool. I mean, it had a lot of advanced features. And back in the day, um, you know, we were, for example, talking to Energis, which was a power company that laid fiber optics over its power lines and provided the um, sort of backbone connectivity for FreeServe, which was the world's biggest ISP at the time. And they, they gave you free internet access and made money from the from sort of kickbacks on the dial-up connections people used back then. And, uh, you know, the plan was to create this big cloud service that enabled anybody to keep their files online, but it was more than that. It enabled people to collaborate and share files better. And then, then the, <laughs> then the dot-com crash hit and that was pretty brutal. And, you know, back then uh, you, you had a kind of, eclectic mix of investors you know you just didn't have um the tech investors that you see today and you know i had a farmer as an, an investor and all kinds of um interesting people involved and once the dot-com crash hit you know pretty much everyone was tarred with tarred with this same brush you know and um the sentiment turned very much against uh, people developing technology projects and and frankly you know back in london in in 2001 you know, people looked at me like I was from another planet when I was trying to explain these ideas of cloud computing. And I got well and truly um, battered by the whole experience. And, uh, you know, actually, Edox was my sort of, um, me, me coming back, trying to use the same kind of technology in, in the mobile space. Um, but, you know, it's, I've, I guess I got a long history in, in um, this business of, you know, creating... Uh, storage out there in cyberspace that people can use and applying cryptography and uh, trying to make things run fast over the internet. Yeah. And I think also just even from that story, you know, the experience of cycles, right? You're trying to innovate in cycles and there's certainly lots of parallels there. I imagine um, with the crypto winter that we've emerged from um, in 2020 um, preceding ICO mania of 2017. And you know, similarly, lots of projects associated to crypto, especially in Europe, actually were shunned. So um, I'm sure lots of that's going to come through in this story. So Definity itself was, you know, speaking of timing, was one of the first movers back in 2015. So just a year after Ethereum, maybe less uh, in 2014. Um, and was funded in the hundreds of millions of dollars, backed by uh, all the top tier VCs like Corvich, Polychain, uh, you name it. And that's really allowed you um, the luxury, but for some projects, it can be a curse um, of having a, a lot of capital to do very ambitious R&D. And so again, I want to talk about how you uh, how you've avoided falling into the trap of, um, you know, having deep pockets. Um, and at the same time, because of that being a first mover, and this is one of the reasons why I wanted you to show, is you've obviously had to adapt and evolve, just like Ethereum is, um, with 
uh, new contenders that are coming out with the benefit of a, a blank sheet of paper. So again, I think it's going to be interesting to see um, how you've evolved uh, Definity. Um, at the same time, you know, predating crypto, uh, one of the other startups that you've had, you've grown large user bases, uh, including in a kind of consumer context. So you had a massively multiplayer uh, online game social network, which at one point had uh, up to 3 million users from what I could gather and was the fastest growing kids game in, in Europe. For boys, yeah. For boys, right, before 2010. Um, equally, you're an inventor of a number of what I'm assuming are patents, threshold relay chains, um, as well as other crypto systems, validation towers, puzzle towers, etc. Um, clearly, yeah, th- yeah, those yeah those things, by the way, were never patented. So uh, there's a lot of early work that I did that I think can be reapplied by people, and um, you know, at some point, I hope to sort of share it more broadly because just the the nature of this industry and you're always kind of working on something and have no time. But, um, and so a lot of the ideas were only shared, um, you know, back into the 2014, 2015, but yeah, things like that, you know, there are, there are early ideas like validation towers, for example, that could be more widely applied in crypto. And I hope, um, some of that early theoretical work will be, uh, reused more broadly. Yeah, well, I think that's one of the most exciting things about Web3 is uh, the fact that a lot of this innovation happens out in the open um, and it kind of compounds uh, the innovation as everybody can kind of borrow from, adapt, evolve one another's innovations. So um, that's great to hear. And um, But before decentralization, I guess, was a theme, um, you were already into exploring scalable systems uh, in terms of distributed databases. Um, And I believe you were mentioned in O'Reilly's original definitive Cassandra guide. Um, (laughs) So that's your claim to fame, obviously beyond what you've been doing with uh, Definity. Um, So you you mentioned uh, some of the kind of earlier career highlights with that smart drives, um, AirDocs, as I just mentioned, Fight My Monster, all of those you were founder and CEO. Um, and then uh, it looks like the kind of first, at least explicit crypto project was um, at Mirror Labs, which was a, sh- a short contract, but um, you were working on, uh, or an early, early pioneer in decentralized finance. I believe you worked on a, a proof of concept that was um, leveraging technology similar to what happens with the Lightning Network and, and Mirror Assets, right? Yeah, wow, you're well informed. Um- so actually what happened was I was, you know, moving away from that game um, and, and looking to go, to go, go and do something new in sort of 2013. And, you know, the April uh, 2013 um, Bitcoin pump, if we can call it that, it went up to $230, caught my eye. And I'd heard about Bitcoin and it had been in the kind of, you know, uh, on the edge of my consciousness, uh, but I'd ne- never had time to look into it. Uh, because I'd just been working so damn hard on whatever my current project was. And in fact, back in 1999, when I was working on that Smart Drives project, um, and God, Smart Drives is a terrible name now, isn't it? It's such a dated name. But anyway. With a Z on the working, end, by the way. Yeah, that's right. Yeah. <laughs> um, when I was working on the Smart Drives project, um, I, uh, you know, I, I mentioned that I made the link secure by you know, first having the client and server to do Diffie Hellman Key Exchange, and then I encrypted everything symmetrically using Blowfish. But I actually used a, a, a cryptography library called Crypto Plus Plus, 
um, which was produced by a guy called Wei Dai. So I used to go to this guy called Wei Dai's website, um, and he was an early cypherpunk, and he was linked into you know, Hal Finney and those other people that basically created Bitcoin. And um, he had this uh, paper called B Money, um, which was pretty, pretty, it was, it was really a proposal and it was very simple. But, you know, back at the time, I'd read it and reread it and, and, and sort of realized there was something intriguing there, but not really understood it. Um, and of course, um, those guys had been sort of talking about things like Bitcoin for years and years. I mean, Bitcoin didn't come out of nowhere. Um, and so, you know, I didn't have the context. It didn't, Again, you know, I was focused on other things and I was intrigued by it. So I was sort of aware um, th that something like that could be done, but, um, you know, just never had the time. So when Bitcoin did that, the timing was right. And um, very quickly, I was, um, you know, trading Bitcoin and getting involved. And uh, of course, I have a very, I'm quite a technical person and, you know, I have a strong uh, academic background in computer science, at least at undergraduate level, you know, I was talking to my class, won some prizes and so on. Um, and interested in distributed computing and cryptography and things like that, and also performance. So with, with Fight My Monster, um, you know, we used Cassandra. In fact, Fight My Monster was the first sort of complex production uh, implementation of a system based on Cassandra. Uh, we did that while Cassandra was in beta. Cassandra actually lost 800,000 users data at one point. And, we had the Cassandra guys come in and recover it. Um, but that was only part of the system. Cassandra was a decentralized database that um, it is very easy to scale. But I also had a game server that was horizontally scalable and it used a whole uh, bunch of algorithms and, and systems that um, you know, I, I designed. And actually that was my passion. You know, um, I very much enjoyed working on this computer game. Um, and I worked with some brilliant people, but I was also absolutely obsessed with these systems behind it. So, uh, you know, I'd kind of um, been focusing on how you create things that scale for some years. And that was my passion. Uh, obviously, I had a history working with cryptography and things like that too. And so when I saw Bitcoin, you know, very quickly, um, I became interested in how could the principles of Bitcoin be, be extended? You know, how could we create uh, blockchains that ran faster and could scale the number of transactions. So, I, you know, I initially started looking at some of the existing systems trying to do that. One was called NXT. Um, yeah, it was an early proof of, yeah, early proof of stake system. And I, you know, I started looking at looking at it and sort of digging into the way it worked. And then I found some sort of mysterious aspects to its design. So, for example what they were doing was taking the hash of a block and using that to select the next, the, the validator that would produce the next block. They called the validator a forger and they called the pr production of a block minting. And so I went to the forum and I raised the question, hey guys, I don't understand. Why can't the current forger just choose the, you know, rearrange the transactions to create a hash that always reselects his own <laughs> validator node, right? And um, they were all very shifty. They wouldn't really answer the question. And, but, but I kind of, you know, I, I innocently um, presumed, you know, that they were just not wanting to bother with this sort of dude he didn't understand. And then there was this guy, there was this guy called, um, what was he called? Um, he was named after a Star, Star Trek character. And um, 
someone else called Come From Beyond. Anyway, Come From Beyond was the main architect of this system. And he started describing something that sounded very like Lightning Network. And I was intrigued. I felt that there had to be some way to, 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 to have instantaneous transactions in a decentralized environment. And um, he kept on sort of teasing it for three months. And eventually, he, he, he came out and said, look, you know, it was called transparent forging. And he said, transparent forging um, is, uh, you know, doesn't exist and it won't be possible until uh, humanity learns, learns to uh, tr trust each other. So I was very disappointed, obviously, at this point, And I thought, okay, I think I'd better start designing this stuff myself from the ground up, <laughs> right? I, I realized at that point that, you know, these guys were sort of just winging it and the technology didn't really work. And um, they were just sort of throwing stuff together and, and hoping they could solve problems later. So I actually spent all of 2014 um, researching um, how I could use uh, techniques from the um, consensus branch of distributed computing uh, and repurpose those techniques within the context of a decentralized network. And, um, you know, I was using these, like, in the end, I came up with a really cool framework, which repurposed, like, um, you know, fully asynchronous, uh, leader-free consensus, presenting fault tolerant consensus algorithms, and combine them with things like consistent broadcast, all kinds of other things, uh, to uh, create, a, create a, uh, the design for a blockchain I call Pebble, and the papers out there floating around, um, back then, I was on this um, news group, private news group called Crypto Finance, and there are a lot of people we, that, that are well-known names on that now. Like you know, Vitalik was on it, Nick Savo was on it, um, Emin Gunsura joined. Eventually, sort of blew up in a flame war. Nothing to do with me, but um, <laughs> you know, they would share, shared that paper. It was like 300 pages long, describing this thing called Pebble. And Pebble was a novel cryptocurrency in many ways. It it it, it it served a slightly different purpose. And I envisioned, for example, um, supporting micropayments so that people um, could use micropayments from this blockchain to get rid of advertising if they so wanted and things like that. So, uh, you know, it was a different vision for a, for a blockchain um, based on very different um, science. And, you know, I, I set about trying to raise money for it with a guy called Artia, who, you know, currently works at Affinity, Artia Mogwell. And he'd actually been working at a VC called Greycroft that had funded Fight My Monster. It was one of the reasons I'd come to the US. So we tried raising funding anyway for this thing called Pebble in 2014. And honestly, I mean, you know, um, pe people, VCs would sort of look at, it, look at us like we are mad. It was just too difficult to explain. Nobody could, you know, grok this idea of a decentralized network and tokens that had value um, to just from an existence inside the protocol. Um, so that was, you know, we, we got near, but we just couldn't, couldn't pull it off. And um, so I sort of, we sort of beat a tactical retreat and I went back to my research. And funnily enough, uh, you know, 2015, I sort of changed tack. You know, I was um, in communication with the Ethereum folks all during this period. And, you know, I became convinced that um, look, you know, Bitcoin was this interesting thing. It was just, it was a cryptocurrency ledger. And even then I thought Bitcoin would be digital gold. I didn't think it was going to be a new currency. Um, and I saw that Ethereum was kind of something else altogether. You know, it could host these scripts. And I saw that there was a fundamental shift happening where, you know, on Bitcoin, you have a column, which is three a three-column ledger. The first column is the 
is the address. The second column is a balance of Bitcoin at that address. And the third column is an access control script. And basically, you know, if you can unlock the access control scripts, you can move Bitcoin to new addresses. You can spend the Bitcoin. And I saw that Ethereum was doing something very interesting. And, you know, there were precursors to this, like MasterCoin and so on, but they ran over Bitcoin. But essentially, you know, they were switching the order of the last two columns. So instead of having address, balance of coins, script, uh, uh, such that the scripts disappear whenever the coins move, now you have address, script, coins, and the coins move between the scripts. And they created this highly programmable cryptocurrency um, with during complete scripting. And, uh, you know, then the, the, the name world computer was used. And I looked at this and I thought, wow, you know, it, this is amazing. Like we need to find a way to enable Ethereum to scale so that, um, and to increase its performance and make various other changes so that Ethereum can be the sort of backbone of the world's computing infrastructure. Like, you know, Ethereum should be able to, uh, you know, host the world's software, the world's data, and all of its computations, or, for the, or in a large part. And this would be on, you know, because it's a blockchain, it's unstoppable, tamper-proof. Um, you don't need firewalls to protect the hosted software. Um, it's obviously open. It's far better that the world builds on something like that than... Uh, you know, Amazon Web Services or some other big tech service. Um, I mean, I could go on and on. And so at that time, you know, I'd started working with, you know, on a new sort of train of theoretical thought. I was using BLS threshold cryptography to generate random numbers. And I could do that in a way in a decentralized network um, that didn't involve consensus protocols. So I could create a stream of random numbers in a decentralized network that was unmanipulable, unstoppable, and unpredictable. And I, didn't, I could do that without, uh, very efficiently without running a consensus protocol. So I could get everyone to agree in this decentralized network on the sequence of numbers without running a consensus protocol. And I realized that I could use that sequence of random numbers to drive other protocols. And um, that, that was, of course, Threshold Relay. And you know, um, I'd connected with Dan Bonnet, who, who's one of the... Um, uh, inventors of BLS threshold cryptography at Stanford. He heads secure systems at Stanford, and he had confirmed um, various thinking I had. And I had a sort of new, you know, new evolving visions about how infinitely scalable blockchains could be developed. And, and in fact, we don't use validation towers, but that that's where the you know validation towers was a technique that I developed around that time to try and solve that problem. But you know, it wasn't a, it wasn't a project I had any intention of monetizing. It was really a research project. And I was sort of hoping, I guess, that it would be, you know, it could become Ethereum 2.0 or Ethereum 3.0. And, um, you know, I spent a lot of time discussing this kind of thing uh, with Ethereum folks. And, you know, there was like a, an Ethereum circuit in 2014, 2015. And, you know, we sort of, this um, traveling circus um, went from place to place around the world. And there were lots of interesting discussions. But... You know, over time, it became clear that the the objectives and the visions were different, and um, you know, Ethereum would go its own way, and and um, so I, you know, at the time, I was sort of a bit beaten down after Pebble, and I sort of had to regroup, and in, you know, you're quite right. In 2015, I worked at a place called Mirror Labs, and 
Uh, they were pursuing a, a vision uh, that had actually started with Nick Sabo for something called Mirror Assets. And um, I was dallying, um, um, dabbling in that kind of stuff as well um, after that. And then I joined a guy called Tom Ding, and we um, created this thing called String Labs, which was an incubator for, you know, boutique in incubator for advanced decentralized technology projects. And initially, String Labs was pursuing mirror assets and, and trying to bring that to life. And then in early 2016, we realized, hey, look, you know, the regulatory environment is just too tough. We're not going to be able to do this, um, given at least the limitations of Ethereum, right? We're just not going to be able to do this. And so I saw my chance and I proposed to everyone, look, guys, this isn't going to be possible for some years. You, you need a different decentralized uh, platform to build something like this on. Um, it's too early, but why don't we do um, Definity, you know? And managed to persuade everyone. And at that point, you know, now finally we've got like a, you know, String Labs was backed by, you know, several VCs, it was VC funded. And so all of a sudden now there was funding. And so String Labs then um, led the charge, you know, sort of helping uh, as an incubator bootstrap uh, Divinity. And, you know, we, we realized we have to create an organization and so on. And they uh, created uh, the Divinity Foundation in Zug originally, although it's based in Zurich now, uh, October, I think it was October 2016. And then we run, ran, I think, pretty much the first uh, decentralized uh, fundraiser. Some people call it an ICO, but I don't like the term ICO because a lot of those things weren't really um, decentralized. We ran a gen, I, I believe, probably even to this day, the, the one and only truly decentralized fundraiser uh, in February 2017. And the ambitions were very modest, you know, because you know, we've been close to Ethereum. Ethereum only ran 20 million. So our plan was, okay, look, we'll do a seed round, we'll raise a million dollars. And then once we've developed the prototype and shown how this can work, we'll raise $20 million. Um, so we were, you know, really very naive. And, and I think nobody knew it was coming. And, you know, in the event, we raised 3.9 million Swiss francs. And uh, I was pleased it was seed money, you know, and... Um, you know, raise the money in Swiss francs, but people donated in Ether and Bitcoin and that went up in value. So, you know, we got a great start. And it was in 2018 when we raised a lot of money from, from hedge funds and VCs. Um, but, you know, immediately after <laughs> we'd done that fundraiser, that modest fundraiser, and, and by the way, uh, people who participated in that seed round are, are now looking at, you know, returns of 400, 500X. Um, uh, you know, then all of a sudden the sort of, the whole kind of market changed and people became much more cynical. And, you know, Tezos ran like a six week ICO, like the Definity decentralized fundraiser lasted 24 hours. You know, it was accelerating towards the end. So anybody watching it would have seen that there was a huge appetite uh, out there on the internet um, worldwide to invest in these kind of things. But, um, you know, yeah, we, 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 we basically said once we've raised a million dollars, we're turning this off after 24 hours and we raised 3.9. But after that, you know, all of a sudden there was this explosion and everyone was like, now we're just going to collect. Now we've seen that's the case, you know, that we're just going to collect as much money as we can. And so Tezos started off with the six week ICO. And then of course, the notorious EOS, um, 
uh, ICO, year-long ICO was, was kicked off and they collected like some $4 billion. Um, so yeah, you know, we were, we were, we were much more naive and, and, and less um, cynical about the whole thing. So um, it's interesting, you know, obviously the, the internet computer is your kind of moniker. It's, it's the way that you describe the kind of mission or the, the kind of key innovation. And obviously, you know, many people will be familiar with the world computer as, as was kind of uh, initially stated by Ethereum. So what, what's, what's the same and what's different in the vision? Not necessarily, you know, technically, but in, in, in the vision itself. Well, I mean, I mean, first of all, um, you, you know, I believe the, the internet's a half finished project. I, you know, I, 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 first um you know got involved in the internet and programming internet systems you know uh, uh with distributed computing uh back in i suppose you know 92 um and you know i was like anyone at that time uh, just you know bowled over by the possibilities and i remember you know using mosaic and which was of course credited by mark andreason and all that kind of stuff and People forget that you know the, the internet was a. It cost a lot of money to develop. There are a lot of smart people involved in developing the internet, TCP/IP, and so on. And um, the funding came from uh, a number of sources, but a lot of it came from, you know, um, DARPA, for example. You know, Defense Advanced Projects Research Agency, whatever it is. And the objective was to create a communications network that could continue functioning in the event of a nuclear strike. And I actually think um, that objective is still very important. Uh, you know, we need humanity's in infrastructure to be anti-fragile, um, to be indestructible, especially as concerns computing. Um, look, the, the population, the world's population right now is 7.8 billion people. There is no way that population can be supported without an incredible level of automation. So, you know, we know that, for example, you know, we have zero-day inventory at supermarkets. Um, there's a hugely complex supply chain that is operated by computers that makes all that possible. Um, if you took the computers away, uh, the, the future, literally the food chain would break down. And that gives you an idea how important all this is. And we need the internet to be highly resilient. Um, but we also need uh, you know, our software and data to be highly resilient, especially because automation is becoming ever more complex and ever more essential. And uh, you know, I, I still think it's credible that somebody could fly an airplane into a hyperscale data center, one of Amazon's hyperscale data centers, and they try to hide the locations, but you can easily find them on Google. I think it's credible that uh, you know, someone could let off an atomic bomb. I mean, hopefully it will never happen, but these black swan events do occur. Moreover, I mean, you know, there's a thing called the Carrington event where a solar flare fried all the telegraph lines um, back in 1875 or something like that. Some dates roughly correct. Um, and a similar event would, would fry data centers. And in fact, uh, again, you can find this out on, you know, get the details on Wikipedia. The, uh, a solar flare of equal strength passed through Earth's orbit just a few years ago. We missed it by uh, just a few days. So uh, I think 
we're taking a lot of risks with the current centralized hyperscale data center model. Things can go wrong at a technical level. And so I think that it's not enough for the internet just to be a network. So I think there's an inevitable evolution of the internet which extends the internet from just being a network to being you know, the internet computer, which is network plus compute. And so first of all, um, just with respect to the safety of humanity, um, which depends upon um, critical software uh, and, and data not disappearing and continuing to run, we, we need to see that evolution. So I sort of wanna you know, see that happen um, for those reasons. And that's why we talk about the internet computer. Now, um, it's not just about that. Uh, I've also been writing software for a very long time. Uh, you know, I was programming a ZX81 in 1981. I think the most memory you could put into it was 64 kilobytes. Um, my parents wouldn't buy me a computer. It was at school and I used to write down programs in basic on paper and then I'd get, you know, access to it for half an hour or something like that. And I'd get my piece of paper out and type in my program. And of course, being a child, I just wanted to create games. And I, you know, I really admired those um, Space Invader programs. So I'd, you know, create my own variations on that. Um, but I, you know, I, I've been, um, I've got a lot of experience with computers. I've coded just about every different kind of system you can imagine. And I've felt for a very long time that there are issues with um, the way our platforms work and the complexity and the insecurity and the fragility and uh, indeed software itself. And, the, and so the internet computer goes, um, you know, a, a long way to addressing some of that. It tries to create a final, a final platform for humanity to build on. So, it does a lot of very interesting things. Yeah, first of all, um, it provides um, you know good performance, and in some respects, in in some areas, it can outperform the legacy IT stack. You know, hyperscale data center um, with you know databases and memcached and all that kind of stuff, and load balancing plus CDN and whatever else. You know, the internet computer will be able to able to outperform um, that legacy IT and. Uh, in, in some respects. So that's important, but it's much more than that. Um, we sort of reimagine software and starting with smart contracts. And, you know, when I was looking at Ethereum, I, I, I noticed that some of these properties, right? So obviously, you know, you're kind of writing your smart contracts into cyberspace. So that's the internet computer vision too, write your code into cyberspace and the data lives up there. But I, with Ethereum, it's actually faked, but I, I saw that there's no notion of a file system on Ethereum um, or, or even of a database. Um, you know, Solidity gives you the impression that data lives in the variables. Now, I thought that's very cool. Um, now, in actual fact, Solidity fakes it. And uh, as you know, I'm sure that um, Solidity uses these sort of EVM instructions, S-store and S-load to store individual 256-byte chunks in, uh, sorry, 256-bit bit chunks in the uh, sort of Merkleized database underneath it all. But um, I thought, well, okay, uh, wouldn't it be great if um, 
you could just get rid of all of that, you know, and, and, and there weren't files and there weren't databases and people just wrote code and you could just sort of boil down code to its purest form. And so on the internet computer, um, you know, data lives in a programmer's variables, objects, collections, and data types. And in actual fact, a software canister contains two things. It's a very simple thing. It contains WebAssembly bytecode, which you can compile down from any language. At the moment, the Definity Foundation's SDK supports Rust and Matoko, a new computer language that our languages team has developed. Um, it contains these WebAssembly, this WebAssembly bytecode, and the memory pages that that bytecode runs in. And each canister can um, hold up to four gigabytes of memory pages. And uh, the design works in such a way that these, these um, canisters are something called a software actor, which provides for concurrency. And you now have a, um, you're providing developers with a great experience because they're just writing code and, and, and their data persists automatically. They, they can forget about shuffling data in and out of files and databases. And without getting into the details, it also means we can provide great performance. And now all of a sudden you've got a different paradigm. Like, you know, look, um, traditionally a software program or system has always been limited by the memory on the computer that it runs on. But obviously over time that's increased enormously, like, you know, hardware gets cheaper. Back in 1981 when I was programming on a ZX81, look, it had 64 kilobytes. Mine didn't even have that much. That was the maximum amount of memory. Um, currently my uh, MacBook Pro that I'm using right now has 30 gig of memory. And um, I would have got the 60 gig one, but they, they didn't have it in the, 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 the Apple store when I went there. So, you know, you go from 64 kilobyte to 60 gig, that's an increase of a million times. The memory's increased enormously. Yet still, um, you know, you still can sometimes push the limits of that. And, um, you know, you're limited by how much physical memory there is on one computer. Um, all of your sort of system code and the memory it uses has to, to fit inside that. And, you know, there are, there's a virtual memory system, so you have things like the swap disk, but still fundamentally you're limited by the physical memory on, on, on this one device. On the internet computer, um, you build software systems, uh, if you need to, from multiple actor objects, which are canisters, right? And each object comes with its own memory. So each object can, um, you know, store up to four gigabytes of data. Some of them are much smaller. Some of them are only a few kilobytes. So it's a different model. Rather than all your uh, all the objects in your system sort of running in the same memory space, now each object comes with with um, up to four gigabytes of memory pages. And, it, and each and each object can interact with it with other objects by calling their functions, right, and sharing functions and so on. But each object can only directly access its own memory. And uh, this provides a foundation um, for code that scales. So we've begun demonstrating this. Like, you know, you can have a collection like a map, hash map or something that can hold exabytes of data. So, you know, to create a data store that would hold, you know, a, pro, a seven and a 7.8 billion profiles, like a profile for everybody on earth, you could just sort of go, there's a thing called Big Map, it's a library we develop internally. You could just sort of, you know, just go sort of like, you know, let map equals new big map. <laughs> and then you're literally just going, you know, map, angle brackets, Joe equals 
his profile, you know, map angle brackets, Jamie equals your profile, map angle brackets, Dom equals my profile. You could do that for everybody on earth, right? And now you, you've got this thing that looks like it's in memory, but is in memory, right? But it can store exabytes of, of, of objects. So you sort of have this unlimited memory space. And this is this whole thing's called orthogonal persistence. And so um, as it turns out, this approach also works very well in conjunction with the internet computer's own architecture, um, which is constantly spinning up these uh, blockchains, which we call subnets, and using this thing called keychain technology that, that allows them to communicate directly without having to have copies of each other's data. And that's, of course, why we have so many of the world's leading cryptographers on the team. And, um, you know, because the communication between these, these canisters is, is asynchronous. Like when one canister calls another canister, it's actually asynchronous, even if the high-level programming language hides that. And, you know, you make a call to another canister, the, the sort of uh, handler for the result remains in memory. And when the message comes back, you know, it's, in, it's invoked. Uh, so, yeah, it all kind of worked out beautifully, really. And the vision is, isn't just about, you know, our vision is much bigger than blockchain. When we talk to mainstream media, we don't even use the word blockchain because it, it confuses people because they, because they hold these preconceptions. Blockchain's slow, um, you know, blockchain can't scale and so on, or it's an immutable log of transactions back to Genesis. And, you know, none of these things are true as concerns the internet computer. And, you, you know, our, our, our vision is much, you know, bigger. Like when we're thinking about where we're focused, you know, we're not trying, we're not thinking about trying to compete, say, with Ethereum or Polkadot or something like that. You know, we're thinking about how do we um, get the whole world building on the internet computer and how do we um, move people away from uh, legacy IT and um, convince them to stop building on things like Amazon Web Services and using databases and memcached and file systems and firewalls and all that old, old school stuff. Yeah. And so you, so that the premise is that this, has created this high performance hyperscale internet service and i believe um in less than a thousand lines of code um and so the premise is that that then enables open internet services so could you talk us through that future the use cases that would be possible and the characteristics that they would have that wouldn't currently be possible sure sure so actually um you know i think in in practice of course you know it any hyperscale internet service would 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 um, involve more than a thousand lines of code because you're going to add all kinds of um, polishes to the user experience, right? That, that that will extend the code base. But yeah, you know, you can create um, something like CanCan, which is our TikTok clone, in less than a thousand lines of code, and that's because you know you can do things um, uh, like I just described, where you know just 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 create a hash <laughs> collection and um, you know like a, a and just put as much data into it as you like. And that's very different to using the, the legacy IT stack. Um, you know, I mean, there's an, systems like Facebook and even TikTok are extraordinarily com complex behind the scenes. Um, so yeah, we do vastly simplify that. But look, um, our vision is, you know, we, we, we started with a clean sheet of paper. Um, we've applied an enormous amount of learnings in, in the design of the internet computer and a lot of uh, advanced computer science. So what is the vision? Why is the internet computer better? Well, there's actually, it turns out an awful lot of reasons. I mean, first of all, we just think all things being equal, uh, people will in the end prefer to build on the internet rather than build on 
legacy proprietary, you know, closed proprietary systems like Amazon Web Services. Essentially, if you're building an Amazon Web Services, you're a captive customer and, a customer and they, they're going to monetize you and they're going to make it very difficult for you to leave. Um, so I think, you know, the internet's a shelling point and people are going to prefer to build on the internet. And if they do, they're not captive customers and they can interoperate more easily. And just, just for the same kind of reasons that, you know, back in the day in the early 90s, you know, and you had like America Online and CopyServe and Microsoft talking about the information superhighway and petitioning the government to allow them to build that. Um, you know, in the end, people just preferred to use the, um, the open internet, which provide this kind of, this open permissionless marketplace. Like, you know, if, if I build a system on the internet and you build a system on the internet and we're competitors, I can't phone up the owner of the internet and say, hey, I'll give you some stock in my company if you, sh if, if you slow down Jamie's company, right? And, and that's such an important facet of, um, it provides an incredibly strong uh, foundation for an open marketplace and, and e economic growth. And, you know, the internet became kind of field of dreams for that reason. So I think for that same reason, you know, the internet computer uh, is a natural place long term but you know we, we that that's that's not all so next thing you know it, it's unstoppable it can withstand a nuclear strike and your system can be unstoppable too uh it's tamper proof you know and your system can be tamper proof you don't need to protect your system using firewalls and security is an increasing uh issue i mean you know all kinds of for example organizations and you know local governments uh, are being afflicted by um, ransomware. You know, hackers are getting in and encrypting all their servers and demanding Bitcoin to decrypt them. You know, people are embarrassed, so they often don't admit to it, but oftentimes you see it. Like, you know, um, TravelX was down, I think, earlier this year or last year or something. You know, there's huge numbers of these attacks going on. And of course, you know, theft of um, personally identified information. Um, for, for instance, um, you, you know, um, a lot of you know very valuable trade secrets have been stolen and reused. I mean, to the to the tune of hundreds of billions or even trillions of dollars as a result of the insecurity of, of legacy IT. So, you know, the fact that the internet computer is tamper-proof and you don't need a firewall and so on to make it secure—that's a huge advantage. Um, so, and and of course, you know, it reimagines software. So, uh, I think for a lot of the next generation, um, building on the internet computer will be much will be very exciting because they get a better software model. And they, and, and you know, canisters on the internet computer can serve user experiences directly to end users, to into browsers, onto smartphones. So, uh, you know, it's just a one-stop shot. Like the developer of tomorrow will just write code to the internet, right? And and they'll laugh if you tell them you have to get an, an account on Amazon Web Services or learn how to use a relational database like Postgres and accelerate it, or put it up in a master-slave configuration to make it scale, accelerate it with memcached, protect it with a firewall. You know, they'll laugh you out of town. They'll just say, why am I going to do that? I'm just going to write code to the internet computer. But what are the reasons for entrepreneurs to start building on the internet computer now when, um, you know, we're still early in the cycle in a way? Um, okay. So... The reason I think that entrepreneurs should start building on the internet computer is, be is because it's, it, it supports something called open internet services. Open internet services um, are, are built using autonomous software and they run as part of the fabric of the internet autonomously. And they're controlled by a tokenized governance system. And this gives them a huge number of advantages. And it also gives entrepreneurs who are building them or teams of developers 
that are building them a huge number of advantages. In some ways, you can think of open internet services as being a kind of open source equivalent to, uh, for, you know, for a running running service. But you know, that's the it's not quite that's not quite an accurate analogy. So you know, they're composed from autonomous code um, and they're controlled, configured, and upgraded uh, by a token open tokenized governance system. So. You know, first things first, if you're an entrepreneur, what do you need? You need funding. Uh, actually, I mean, I, I can attest to this. I'm here in Palo Alto right now. You know, the world is very different uh, for entrepreneurs outside of Silicon Valley. It's, it's very, very difficult to raise funding. And oftentimes, the investors that you get um, just kind of like bozos. You know, they come from backgrounds that don't really equip them to, um, you know, support the, 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 the companies they invest in. And, and oftentimes they become quite destructive because they don't understand. You know, they come from backgrounds which make them focus on the bottom line early, too early. They don't understand the importance of scaling fast. Um, and the moment anything goes wrong, they sort of, you know, demand things are done uh, as they would do them, um, which oftentimes is antithetical to the way you actually need to run a successful uh, technology startup. So, you know, you've got this dual problem. You, you can't raise money. And if you do raise money, oftentimes the investors won't be that great. They'll be the wrong kind of investors. So what do you do? Um, if you're an on, if you're a op open internet entrepreneur, you'd create an open internet service. And, you know, when you, you know, you build a prototype, um, flick a switch, the internet computer will create an open tokenized governance system and assign all your canisters in that internet service to the open tokenized governance system. And it will give you as the founder, all billion governance tokens. You receive all billion governance tokens. And your objective is to, um, you know, over time, sell those to raise money to fund development. And obviously you probably share them amongst team members and things like that. And, you know, as an individual, you should aim to have, you know, really, 10 to 15% maximum um, by the time this thing reaches scale to ensure that it really is an open internet service. But you know, by selling these tokens, you can, you can raise money. And the internet computer has um, uh, financial frameworks that enable you to do that from anywhere in the world, right? So, you know, 99% of the world's talent at least exists outside of Silicon Valley. Imagine, imagine that 99% of the world's talent exists outside of Silicon Valley. Uh, so, you know, imagine you're, I mean, I, going back to, um, you know, once I used to work with a team of developers in Tomsk, Siberia, it's actually dark six months of the year there. And they have these amazing teams of developers who are really talented. But, you know, you try being a team of developers in Tomsk, Siberia, or an entrepreneur in Tomsk, Siberia, and you try, raising venture capital, it's almost impossible. Um, and if you're unlucky, you, you, <laughs> you, raise, you raise your investment off someone who's um, not gonna give you a very good deal at all. And uh, it might be quite scary. So, um, you know, the, the internet computer provides an amazing opportunity um, to talented teams around the world and places like that to raise money and fund what they're doing. So, that's the first thing. Okay, the second question is, that any entrepreneur will ask is, why would I build an open internet service? How is this going to enable me to compete? Well, 
I mean, I've just covered that, you know, you by building on the, the internet computer, you get unstoppability, uh, security, a better software model that can enable you to create a hyperscale internet service with far fewer lines of code. Um, that's all great, but there's much more, much, much more. So let's think about this. Let's think um, about how we might create, for example, an equivalent to Uber, a competitor for Uber and Lyft called Open Rights. Okay. Well, first of all, um, an open internet service is autonomous. And in a sense, it's like its own blockchain. So that means it can use tokenization strategies. So I would recommend that anybody creating open rides, open rides as an, as an alternative to Uber and Lyft, uh, uses tokenization to incentivize early riders and early drivers. So, you know, why not give away governance tokens in open rides to early riders and early drivers? Um, let them become owners. Um, you know, go into a city like San Francisco and, uh, you know, take rides on Uber and Lyft and evangelize it to get it traction and explain, explain to the drivers, look, if you, if you, every, every single time you, you give um, a ride on, on open rides, you know, you're going to receive, in addition to your um, the payment for your services, in addition to that, you're going to receive governance tokens. You're going to become a part owner of this thing um, and be rewarded for, for helping get this system off, off the ground. So that's pretty cool. Um, uh, secondly, you know, an open internet service is autonomous. It runs as part of the fabric of the internet. You can't really attack the fabric of the internet. Now, you know, Uber, one of the reasons Uber's costs are so high is that it has to negotiate with all of these um, local government bodies that oftentimes are in the pocket of the local taxi monopolies. And it's extraordinarily expensive. Oftentimes, they have to go through the courts to uh, gain the right to operate in, in, in various areas. And um, for example, they have beaten out of um, China by Didi and the politics there. So what advantage does open rights have? Well, guess what? Uh, and well, for example, let, let's talk about my hometown. In, in, you know, in my hometown in the UK, um, I, it's very frustrating. Uber's still not allowed to operate there. And I, you know, a few years ago, I came out of a place. It was pouring with rain. Realized I couldn't call Uber. I had to run half a mile um, to, 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 you know, taxi rank, and you know, ended up I'm getting totally soaked. It's ridiculous. Um, and and the local council, of course, had sort of banned Uber there. And so, okay, so let's imagine you've got open rights. Well, how is that same local council going to ban open rights? There's no organization that they can attack. It's essentially, um, you know, a protocol itself. It runs as part of the internet. Yeah, sure, it's a, it's a service built from software, right, running in the internet computer. But what is that? It's ultimately no different to Bitcoins on the Bitcoin ledger, right? And the Bitcoin scripts. It's just a very advanced evolution of it. And, you know, you can't attack it um, any more than you can sue the, Bit the Bitcoin ledger. So, uh, you know, I suppose one thing you could do is, is to try and find out who the early riders and drivers were and sue them. But in practice, that's too difficult. So that's a huge, huge advantage. Um, uh, let's think of something like open photos. So I don't know if you've, any of you have seen the recent changes with Google Photos. 
like Google originally said, you know, they were going to give everyone this free storage and they were never going to lock you in. That was their sort of pledge. We're never going to lock you in. So um, rather predictably with big tech, you know, even with Google, um, recently they stopped allowing you to sync your photos, your Google photos to your hard drive, right? So that was stage one. They've locked everybody in. Admittedly, if you want to, you can go, you can, you know, go to Google Photos online and go photo by photo through thousands of photos, <laughs> individually downloading them. Um, but obviously no one's gonna do that. So now, you know, they've done their first big tech move of uh, locking you in when they promised they wouldn't. And now, of course, they've they've announced that the storage will no longer be free and and um, they're gonna start charging soon. And okay, so that's a kind of bad system. And you know increasingly, and this is happening with iCloud too and so on, um, people are finding that, you know, for example, a relative has a lot of family photos and the relative gets ill um, and is in hospital for a long time. Maybe they're you know, disabled and their credit card expires or they even die. And, and finding that, you know, the, the photographs disappear with them. And this is really tragic and horrible. So let's think how we can make open photos on the internet computer better. Okay. So first of all, we can use DeFi. We can enable people to uh, make a deposit once that pays for say a terabyte of photo storage for all time, for eternity, okay? How does that work? Well, obviously what you do is you say, look, you're gonna deposit this amount of money, you turn it into some kind of token like ICP, and then you'd use that in a margin lending scheme, something like Compound does, right? So you'd um, lend those tokens out essentially to people who wanna go short, and earn interest from them. And that interest would pay for the uh, hardware. And of course the underlying hardware, um, or not the hardware directly, but you know, the space on the internet computer, obviously that gets, will continue to get less expensive over time. So, you know, that's great. Now all of a sudden open photos can say to people, hey, you know, you can make a deposit of a very reasonable amount. Um, and for that, you get uh, a terabyte of a storage for eternity. That's pretty cool. Secondly, uh, think about the security aspect of all of this. You may have heard that recently, just a couple of weeks ago, I think it was, some white hat hackers got into Apple. They were invited to try and they got in. They found they could see everything, everything on iCloud. Now they also found actually they could push software updates to MacBook Pros and iPhones, which is very scary, but let's just talk about the iCloud piece for a moment. Like today, you know, people have, private photographs um, in their archives that they don't want on the internet. These guys could see everybody's iCloud photos. I don't know how many people have photos on iCloud, but it's probably hundreds of millions. So open photos, of course, is built on the internet computer. It doesn't work like a normal blockchain. Not only is it tamper-proof, but you can make data private and um, gain a far, far higher level of confidence that your photographs will never fall into the hands of hackers, right? Especially because you're accessing open photos using, you know, something like WebAuthn. So, you know, the, the, the secure hardware that inside MacBooks and iPhones and Pixels and other devices that, you know, the, the secure chips that hold your private key and things like that. So you can, you can be sure that, um, you know, um, your private photographs won't end up on the internet one day. Um, lastly, uh, the internet computer does something very important, and it's actually probably 
the most important feature in some ways, but it's difficult to explain, but I'll have a go. The internet computer makes it possible for software to share functionality and data in a trustless way. What that means is um, something called service composability is possible. This is enabled by something called permanent APIs that um, enable um, uh, a software interface that's shared to be decorated with this permanent keyword um, and such that any future upgrades to the software um, will fail if they remove that function. That's the first part. So, you know, um, if you've got an open internet service like Open Photos, controlled by Open Tokenized Governance System, you know, it's, you know, that tokenized governance system is still adopting software updates and pushing them, right? Uh, once Open Photos has declared an API that enables people with permission to access some users' photographs, um, that API cannot be removed. Now, you might say, well, what happens if the tokenized governance system turns evil and degrades the functionality behind the API? So the actual function call stays there, but the actual processing performed by the function um, no longer does what it's meant to. Well, actually the internet computer, uh, if it's an open internet service, the internet computer has a way of fixing that. Somebody can put a proposal into the, the network nervous system, which manages the overall internet computer network. And the network nervous system can uh, force the open governance system of open photos to reverse changes. Now this is extraordinarily important because uh, we're seeing the breakdown of well, I'm not seeing, it's already, the, the dream of the programmable web has already long, you know, that ship's long sailed. Um, you know, back, uh, you know, 10 years ago, we all thought that everybody would be building new services by incorporating the functionality and data of existing services, right? But there were some early warning signs, like, you know, Zynga, uh, even though it was a public company, you know, had built games on the Facebook platform and, um, you know, it was very successful, things like Farmville, Facebook just ch decided to change the rules. And, you know, they wanted a bigger slice of revenues and they weren't gonna make it difficult for, more difficult um, to, for, for games like uh, Vizinga to market its games without paying them more money and so on. And, you know, after that happened, you know, Zinger's shares uh, fell 85% in price. But, you know, this is a very, very widespread thing. I mean, I mean, look at LinkedIn and LinkedIn something uh, I know about very well um, because I knew of a very successful company that built on top of LinkedIn's APIs. It was called Relate IQ, and it created a communications map. Uh, you know, it could slot into your email and messaging and things like that and create a communications map for your company. It was really cool. But, you know, if you looked at the, the, the communications map and you hovered over the vertices, you know, the, the points, a little um, professional profile pop up. Where did the professional profile come from? It came from LinkedIn, because LinkedIn, in the early days, in order to gain traction and grow, um, created this API that allowed other services to incorporate professional profiles, right? And a lot of startups, I'm sure like a thousand startups at least that built on top of these APIs, treated LinkedIn just like a database of professional profiles. And so they were directing people to LinkedIn, like, yeah, you know, you wanna um, store a professional profile, you know, enter it here kind of thing. And um, this helped LinkedIn grow enormously in the early days. But remember, the big tech model always tends towards monopol uh, you know, uh, monopolization and monopoly tactics. So at some point, 2014, 2015, I forget, you know, Microsoft bought LinkedIn. And guess what? They revoked everyone's API access um, with a few exceptions, like Salesforce kept it. So this company, Relate IQ, 
um, was actually a unicorn. It was worth like $1.2 billion. It was based in downtown Palo Alto by the fountain. And they, they, they had brilliant investors. Um, you know, everything was right about this venture, but there was nothing they could do. And they had to sell themselves to Salesforce in a fire sale because Salesforce kept the um, LinkedIn API access so that their service would continue working. And I think now it's called Salesforce IQ. And, if, and that's the logo you see if you go down to the fountain in Palo Alto. Now, I think they sold for 300 million. And that sounds like, oh, you know, um, boohoo, poor entrepreneurs. But actually, if you dig in uh, more, it's not so good. You know, I I think they'd raised 240 million, you know, with VCs, you have to, there's a thing called liquidation preference. You have to pay back the 240 million before you share the proceeds of the sale. So that leaves 60 million. And there were two founders. They probably had 30%, I'm guessing, I don't know. So that's 20 million to share, 10 million each. Then you have to pay transaction costs and, and legal fees. You know, these, these dudes, they probably ended up with like $5 million each after building a unicorn. Now look, for most entrepreneurs, being an entrepreneur is a tough, tough job. Right, you'll have a lot of failures, uh, and you know you'll experience a lot of bumps in the road and twists and turns. Um, you have to work extraordinarily hard. Uh, it's stressful, even if it's rewarding. And um, you know, and if you succeed and build a unicorn, you don't want to walk away with five million dollars. It's just not fair, right? So that's the risk you take in today's big tech monopolistic ecosystem. Um, you can't really compete anymore. And even VCs know this. Uh, they're, they're always wanting to know, like you know, what's the platform risk? You know what's the risk that someone in big tech could just switch you off if they want to force you to sell to them or to close you down because they think you're competing. And, you know, Relate IQ, or at least they got some exit, I suppose. Um, but, you know, hundreds of startups went to the wall and just their services just disappeared because essentially, you know, LinkedIn switched off the APIs. Now, yeah, sure, that's the model today. The model today or has been, you know, you, um, it, it, you, know, you, you identify a niche, you recklessly scale in Silicon Valley if you've got access to the capital. And once you've secured the niche um, or a niche, as you, you call it in America, um, you basically hijack all the data and use it, right? You switch off all the APIs. And that's why the programmable web's dead. But it's going to be reborn on the internet computer. So, okay, so what does this mean? Okay, it's actually incredibly important. Let's think about open photographs, open photos, much more catchy. Open photos can create APIs that allow other entrepreneurs and other services to extend the functionality and do cool things with the user's photographs if they've got permission. So what does that mean in practice? That means that open photos will very quickly host um, far more um, fun things like image filters. And, and the users of open photos will soon find there are lots of fun ways they can uh, use their photographs that far exceed what you can do on Google Photos, right? Um, so in the end, you know, these permanent APIs are, are going to um, create a much more dynamic, innovative, collaborative ecosystem where people are able to, you know, compose each other's functionality and data without trusting each other. They don't have to trust that, hey, if I build on this API, you know, I, I could be wrecked later on when they've reached a certain scale and they've decided they don't want to, they don't need the network effects anymore. Um, and we call these things mutualized network effects. And we think in the end, you know, consumers are going to much prefer this open ecosystem because it's going to be far richer and, and more dynamic. And participants won't be able to succeed just by hijacking user data 
uh, they're, they're going to have to keep on innovating, right? So I think that, you know, that's important. Finally, of course, you know, tokenization can be used in very, very sophisticated ways. We've got one of our sample apps is called CanCan. CanCan is a TikTok clone. Um, we originally had something called LinkedIn for reasons that I've alluded to, but we actually started creating this thing called CanCan, which is a TikTok clone. The reason we did that is we wanted to address preconceptions. You know, we wanted to show how, you know, vast quantities of user data can be uploaded to the internet computer, which is a blockchain system under the skin. Um, you know, all the data stored on chain, all the computations on chain. And not only that, that, you know, the, the internet computer can stream video directly back to consumers. It uses a reverse gas model, so you don't need tokens to interact with it. Um, that's why we did it, but now we're moving on to the next phase. Now we've shown that, and, and the next phase is tokenization. So, you know, again, open internet services run as part of the fabric of the internet. They're autonomous, they're like many blockchains, and that means you can introduce tokenization. So how would you use it in a, in a consumer app like TikTok or, or, or CanCan? Well, this is how we did it. Um, we introduced the notion of super likes, Every user on CanCan uh, will have up to 10 super likes every 24 hours. And the objective is to super like things that you think are gonna, gonna, gonna go viral. Now, whenever a video goes viral and gets you know, a very large number of users, CanCan looks at the order in which super likes were made, right? It looks at the order in which super likes are made. And people that super liked early on um, participate um, in far greater extent in a reward points shower, right? So CanCan drops these reward points on the people that super liked that video that became viral early on. Now, why do you want reward points? This is where it gets cool. Um, every few days, CanCan has a drop day, a drop day. And on a drop day, you can exchange your rewards, reward points um, with CanCan governance tokens. So you could become an owner in a sense. Um, and as much as you can become an owner of something on a, a you know, blockchain in cyberspace, um, you can kind of become you know, an owner. And of course, if you wanted to, you could just resell those governance tokens for money. So that's the first thing you can do. You can exchange your reward points um, for governance tokens. Secondly, um, sponsors offer prizes. So you can imagine some you know, trendy clothing manufacturer like Bape offering um, sneakers and hoodies and things like that as prizes. And you can swap at, uh, you know, your rewards points for those prizes. And then the sponsor can reuse the rewards points to pay for advertising, right? Um, and then finally, um, if you've got rewards points, you can use them to tip other users using red letters. So, you know, if you're watching somebody, um, you, know, uh, uh, you know, doing some kind of crazy parkour, extreme sports, um, or someone doing a silly dance, you can show your appreciation by pressing the red, the red letter button and sending them reward points. Um, so uh, we think that makes uh, something that's a much more compelling proposition. I mean, you, you, there, there are so many pieces to this, right? You know, if you're an entrepreneur, you can raise money through tokenization by building an open internet service. Um, you're gonna cut down on the amount of work you've gotta do to build it enormously. Um, you've got an unstoppable system that's secure, um, the new software model that reduces the lines of code you have to write to create something that's um, hyperscale or can, can become hyperscale. Um, and then you've got all these additional clever things you can do. Like you can use tokenization in really clever ways, imaginative ways to make your um, 
application far, far more addictive or drive adoption. So, you know, I've just described how you could, you know, a CanCan, the, the TikTok clone uses it to make, uses tokenization to make it more viral. But earlier we were talking about, you know, open rides and how that, that could gain, you know, use tokenization to gain traction by giving tokens to early riders and early drivers. Um, additionally, you know, you can share these APIs, these permanent APIs that other services and other entrepreneurs and other open tokenized governance systems don't have to trust because they're non-revocable. You can't even, and if, even if you degrade the functionality, you're, you'd be forced to, to, to reverse that. And that means, you know, you can get better network effects um, with the help of other other teams, because you know they they can um, extend the functionality of what you're offering, create something that's a proposition that's even more valuable um, for the user. You can integrate with DeFi, so we talked about that. You know, with Open Photos, um, you know, where somebody can make a deposit and they get a terabyte of photo storage forever. You know, that like an eternal thing; it'll be there on the internet forever. Uh, so you know, there's just so many ways that. Oh, of course, by the way, the other one I'm not touched on at all is you know, note the name, open tokenized governance system is transparent. So, you know, if you go and build like open social, some kind of Facebook competitor, uh, you know, people can see the code you're pushing and things like that. And, and they can see that you're not doing anything nefarious. Like, you know, we keep discovering things like um, more and more horrors, you know, Facebook, obviously, you know, the, the Cambridge Analytica scandal is well known. Um, only recently we discovered that Zoom was exporting all its users' data to Facebook, right? Um, users will get a lot of comfort to, to see that that that, um, that kind of thing's not going on. You can create uh, much more sophisticated community-based um, content moderation systems um, where, you know, if somebody likes, doesn't like content, they can add their own content, content to a fact-checking list. Um, that's obviously a complex subject that we've got time for, but there's so much you can do. So it's not just about, you know, what we've tried very hard to do. Um, and, you know, the project's obviously a massive one and we've spent a lot of money on R&D and continue to spend a lot of money on R&D and continue to, 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 to expand the R&D effort. We want to spend billions of dollars on R&D, but you know, we've got to, you know, we, we've, we've now created um, this, this network that can scale out, provides good performance and do this kind of stuff. And it's already extraordinarily compelling. Like, you know, we're giving, you know, we, we think um, there are good reasons to build on the internet rather than on these closed proprietary systems like Amazon and Azure and Google and so on. Anyway, but even separately to, to, to why you want to build on the open internet rather than on those closed proprietary platforms, you know, there's a pantheon of reasons. Everything from, you know, you, you've got a new revolutionary new software model that can reduce line, lines of code necessary to build a hyperscale internet service, um, right the way through to all of the different compelling ways you can make your open internet service better, give users something better than these monopolistic big tech um, things that for the most part now have stopped innovating. Like, you know, when do you see new features in Gmail? I mean, come on, it's been the same for like a decade because they don't need to do anything. They've already established a monopolistic position. The internet computer will, will, and the open internet generally, I think, is going to completely change that. Fantastic. Great. Well, I mean, look, it's great to hear of different approaches being taken to what is ultimately the same vision. I think the thing that unites us all, whatever you call it, whether it's Web3 or something else, 
um, is the one that you outlined. And uh, I, I think that's something that we can all share. And the more approaches um, to tackle that, the better as far as I'm concerned. So Dominic, it's been a pleasure having you on the show. Um, I look forward to seeing your progress. Brilliant. Thank you for having me. If you enjoyed today's podcast, please make sure you subscribe, rate and share your feedback to help us reach as many people as possible with the important mission of Web3.